Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Welcome to Tall Rounds, and the topic today is Cardiovascular Oncology Center, a multidisciplinary approach. So just by way of introduction, um, my name is Dr. Patrick Collier. Uh, I'm a staff here in cardiovascular medicine, and one of the hats I wear is co-director of the Cardio-Oncology Center. Because cardio-oncology isn't a specific disease, I thought it would be worthwhile just to have a few introductory slides and talk, uh, uh, give a little background. So what is cardio-oncology? I would say it's the newly organized subspecialty that covers the broad intersection between heart disease and cancer. Um, cardio-oncology patients tend to be cancer survivors who get cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular disease survivors who get cancer. And this subspecialty has emerged because of increased survivorship in both cohorts and a recognition of a very impressive epidemiology. So there are currently 21 million people living in the US who have ever been diagnosed with cancer and about 28 million living US people with diagnosed heart disease. And these are growing cohorts with 2 million new cancer diagnoses per year in the US and over 50% of our population with risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Now, because of an aging population and shared risk factors, this is a growing epidemiology. And recognizing that this is a big overlap cohort and it's growing, and it includes some patients with complex and unmet needs, there's been a rapid growth in dedicated cardio-oncology services. And just to give a roadmap for how such a center works, um, we see that uh, a very important link is this consult service between oncology and the center. But also now, there are subspecialist referrals from other cardiologists dealing with um, challenging cases. These days, patients are also self-referring, and we also get patients from pediatric survivorship clinics. Now, you can see these two-way spokes um, to many other subspecialty services. So the cardio-oncology center certainly acts as a triage service. So we interact quite a lot with cardiothoracic surgery and structural intervention, dealing with cardiac masses and radiation heart disease. A very important link is with prevention, dealing with uncontrolled cardiovascular risk factors in our cancer population. Um, Cancer-related thrombosis, we interact with vascular medicine, arrhythmia, we link with electrophysiology, and heart failure, really any form of heart failure, uh, myocarditis, for example. Uh, the oncology uh, teams often direct, uh, directly interact with imaging labs, uh, but uh, the cardio-oncology center helps with that interaction also. So today's uh, tall rounds, it starts with a case report of a rare and challenging diagnosis, really in order to highlight the importance of our multidisciplinary approach. And where I'm gonna follow with specific talks, we've got specialists in imaging, oncology, cardiology, electrophysiology, heart failure, and cardiothoracic surgery. And at the Cleveland Clinic, we truly pride ourselves on our team of teams approach. And I think our cardio-oncology center serves as a great template of this. So uh, I'd like to welcome to the podium Dr. Erica Hutt, and uh, Erica is our great imaging fellow, and she's going to present a case report as discussed. Thank you, Dr. Collier, and good morning, everyone. As Dr. Collier said, I'll be presenting this case. It's a challenging um, and rare case um, of a patient that I had the opportunity of caring for in my month during the uh, cardiac intensive care unit. So this was a 20-year-old male with no significant past medical history. He presented um, with chest pain for four months, initially to an outside hospital. 
and was found to have a large mediastinal mass um, on an initial CT test that he had done for actual ruling out of PE. It showed that there was right atrial invasion, and I'll show you um, the image here. So you start seeing the mass there. It's invading the right atrium. We're going to come back. And you can see it, it starts in the mediastinum and it invades into the right atrium. So very large mass. These are the echocardiogram pictures. And so this is an RV inflow view. And as you can see, the valve acts sort of like a, uh, you know, a, a ball in cage and causes obstruction of the tricuspid valve inflow. Very large. And here you can see the color and you see acceleration of flow through that valve. So very minimal amount of um, you know, blood flows coming to the RV. Again, this is just a short axis to show the, the size of the mass. And so here they measured at 5.3 times 5.4 centimeters. And here's again just um, a, a, a different image just to show how, how big and uh, the mass is and it's really just invading the entire right atrium. And this is just a profile through the tricuspid valve, the Doppler profile, where you can see that there is tricuspid valve stenosis or um, at least functional tricuspid valve stenosis with a mean gradient of eight. This is uh, his EKG, so you can see he's in atrial flutter. You can see that more clear here in, in lead one, where you can see that these flutter waves there. And he was going at around 120 beats per minute on admission. So this was his hospital course. On that's day negative six, he had presented to the outside hospital. Day negative seven, they did a CT-guided biopsy at the outside hospital, which was non-diagnostic, and so they decided to transfer him to us. Day zero, he's admitted to Cleveland Clinic. Again, we try a, a, an IR-guided biopsy, and it's again, unfortunately, non-diagnostic. Um, day nine, he comes to the CICU with atrial flutter with rapid ventricular response. He was going at 150 and developed cardiogenic shock from that. Um, and so in day 10, just a day after coming to our unit, he was placed on VA ECMO for management of cardiogenic shock, which was obstructive plus cardiogenic. He also had um, bi-V dysfunction. Um, and then on day 12, he was taken to the OR for mass removal. We still didn't have a diagnosis, which was a very, very challenging situation. Um, but he was obviously very young, no comorbidities, so we really wanted to give him a chance. Um, and on day 26, he was discharged home. And these are um, the surgical images that Dr. Unai provided to us. So as you can see, this is a right atrial view, and you can see um, this is the large right atrial mass. This is the resected right atrial tumor, um, and this is just the, the final, uh, how, how it looked with a, a pericardial patch over here. Um, and it ended up being an angiosarcoma on um, biopsy. So as this is the follow-up um, event. So he was discharged home one month post-op. He was started on adjuvant chemotherapy with gemcitabine and doxytaxel. Two months post-op, he unfortunately had the first relapse and developed uh, long nodules so we knew it was metastatic, and he was enrolled in the first trial. Six months post-op, he had brain metastasis. Chemo was changed. He was treated with gamma knife. 12 months post-op, he was enrolled in another trial. And 13 uh, post-op, his brain meds actually really improved. But unfortunately, 19 months post-op, he passed away. Um, and the reason why I wanted to bring him up is because despite the fact that we have a negative um, outcome, I, I do think that on a 20-year-old, giving him those 19 months um, of you know life after he, after the surgery, I think, is, 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 is a good thing because otherwise he probably would have passed on the first admission. Thank you. My talk is 
to in seven minutes or so uh, talk about the role of imaging and biomarkers in cardio-oncology. So I'm going to try and address a couple of uh, questions. So what are the typical cardio-oncology scenarios? What are the, the risk benefits that we need to think about? What are the types of cardiotoxic therapy? Cut points to define cardiotoxicity. How often should we do imaging and what are the limits of such surveillance? So um, there are many scenarios, but the most typical are dealing with patients uh, with cancer that have established cardiovascular disease, new cardiovascular symptoms, or are undergoing cardiotoxic therapy and require baseline and serial evaluation of heart function. So what about chemotherapy-related cardiotoxicity? What is it? Well, really 40 years ago or so, it started out as anthracycline-related heart failure. But now it's fair to say, really, with the huge range of new chemotherapeutics, cancer therapeutics, much more complex range of cardiovascular pathologies uh, are in at this area and more of it because of increased survivorship. And the term cancer therapeutics-related cardiac dysfunction, you'll see C or, CT or CD um, in the literature, and this term is being coined to try and encompass all the potential cardiotoxic effects. It includes left ventricular systolic dysfunction, hypertension, myocardial infarction, myocarditis, electrical disturbances, and it's a long list. Now, just to start, it's important to state that most patients tolerate chemotherapy without cardiotoxic effects, but it's an important minority and they can suffer a wide range of serious cardiac problems, either acutely during treatment or thereafter. Not all of it is preventable, and not all of it is, is actually related to chemotherapy. It could be concomitant disease. I think, again, when we're thinking about our decision-making, it always centers on the net benefit of therapy, and we have to consider the toxicity, and we have to think about the cancer prognosis and existing therapies. So two sort of extreme scenarios. If you have a poor prognosis cancer with few existing treatment possibilities, you may be forced to accept toxicity for a new therapy. But alternatively, and hopefully more common, more commonly with uh, treatment advances, toxicity may be unacceptable for later generation drugs in a cancer with multiple existing therapies that has a generally good prognosis. So this slide tries to highlight the very uh, the large variation of different types of therapies and cardiotoxicities. Um, and this, again, by no means is, is exhaustive. Um, you can see anthracyclines, HER2 new target of therapies, fluoropyrimidines, uh, antimicrotubule therapies, VEGF inhibitors, radiotherapy, and the list goes on. The, again, the bottom uh, shows a list of the pathologies that are most common that we have to deal with, but heart failure, left ventricular dysfunction is probably the one that creates the most uh, referral. So with regard to heart failure, left ventricular dysfunction, um, which imaging tests to use? We would say echo is preferable because it's widely available, it's accurate, reproducible, there's no ionizing radiation. We know that cardiac MRI can be hugely helpful in selected cases as it remains a gold standard test in multiple, uh, many of the parameters that we measure in cardiology. Mugger testing has fallen out of favor, it's certainly not first line now because of the radiation, but also cross-modality error. I would note that many of these patients have already had staging CT scans, and this may be already available. It can be certainly very helpful from a cardiologist's perspective because it can inform about anatomy, heart chamber size, atherosclerotic burden, etc. When we're talking about echo, ejection fraction still is the parameter of choice, 
strain we find to be supportive um, uh, and, and sometimes very helpful, particularly when it's concordant with ejection fraction. The cut points to define cardiotoxicity really have varied a lot because of um, the different uh, sources of truth. So from the FDA approved labeling to clinical trial protocols to cut points to adjust therapy and guidelines, you, you can see different definitions in the literature. There has been an attempt uh, just last week, the European Society of Cardiology at their um, Barcelona meeting did uh, um, produce this guideline document and in it um, mentioned essentially a, a, a hopefully an internationally agreed definition for cancer therapeutics related cardiac dysfunction. And again, somewhat um, complicated uh, and again, subdivided into asymptomatic and symptomatic and then through grades of severity. So who should get what test? Um, in this document, they highlighted their recommended baseline serial testing. Um, and they did this for various different types of treatment. And when you uh, review their suggested protocols, you can see it's quite testing intense. And I suppose when you get enthusiastic cardiologists together, um, it's probably no surprise that this is their initial recommendations. But I guess this is a template document and this is a, a first draft, so to speak. Um, I think in clinical practice, you would find that um, such testing is not necessary as frequently performed. Our approach with regard to anthracyclines is typically to get assessment at baseline uh, after therapy. And for patients that are getting higher doses, certainly above 300 milligrams per meter squared, we can consider imaging at those points, or of course, if patients develop symptoms or uh, particular concerns. Um, similarly for HER2 targeted therapies, where um, I would say over time, we've seen less cardiotoxicity. Our approach has been to image patients with uh, concomitant anthracycline therapy at baseline post anthracycline three monthly, and try and identify higher risk patients, such as those with longstanding hypertension, reduced ejection fraction, and in those patients do baseline and maybe three monthly testing, certainly while uh, on treatment. If you look at their document, however, they're even suggesting that three monthly uh, uh, therapy is uh, indicated for low-risk patients during during treatment with follow-up studies. So that's certainly quite, I think, you could agree that that's fairly intensive um, testing. They went through more than just anthracyclines and HER2 new therapies. They uh, gave some instruction on VEGF inhibitors, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, proteasome inhibitors, um, and indeed um, immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, which certainly have had a lot of media attention with a concern for uh, rare but potentially fulminant myocarditis. They also included stem cell transplantations. And uh, they tried to also deal with how should you follow up these patients in terms of remote testing once they get past their treatments. They dealt with special cases such as pregnant women, carcinoid heart disease, and AL amyloid. So I think it's very certainly a very comprehensive document, and I think it will um, probably serve as a good template for which we can, uh, you know, try and uh, uh, modify and optimize over time. So, with all this testing, there are certainly limitations, and it's, worth it's certainly worth considering those. I would say, 
certainly high on the list is limited cost effectiveness data. In clinical practice, we certainly have seen the consequence of high measurement variability. These patients are, are difficult to image. And we've certainly seen that false positives aren't without concern. Um, identification of false positive cardiotoxicity risk can prohibit and can uh, limit patients from accessing you know, life-saving therapies. And that's a very important concern. I think it's also to be aware that these patients are going through a very challenging scenario where heart rate, blood pressure, medications, and fluid status can often vary quite a lot. And so there's often confounding variables uh, in terms of ejection fraction assessment. And we also need to consider that there's other causes other than just the chemotherapy. The chemotherapy always gets blamed. We also have to think about concomitant ischemia, stress cardiomyopathy, myocarditis, or infiltration in this higher risk population. A slide on biomarkers. Now, troponin as a marker of cardiovascular toxicity, particularly in the setting of anthracycline-induced myocyte death and cardiotoxicity, um, has uh, been studied also with regard to trastuzumab or HER2-new-targeted-related loss of myocyte contractility. And these um, have been markers that have been shown to be able to predict risk for events such as heart failure. Perhaps the most studied a biomarker remains NT-proBNP as a marker to confirm the presence of heart failure, but also to identify a specific heart failure phenotype that is a higher risk for adverse outcome. But just like imaging, biomarkers have disadvantages. So we haven't a fully established sampling strategy. We have a problem with non-specificity in these highly sensitive markers, especially in the presence of multiple confounders. There's a challenge of interpreting surrogate endpoints. We don't treat biomarkers, we treat patients, and a lack of clinically meaningful cutoffs. Um, so certainly quite a lot of challenges in this area, but something that we're working towards. Um, and I think, you know, with the, with the sheer numbers of people involved in this area, I think, um, I think we'll come up with some better solutions over time. So today I'm going to talk about the management of cardiac issues during and after treatment. So once they have detected that there's some kind of cardiac issues going on related to the treatment itself, how do we manage those patients during the treatment and after the treatment? So what are the possibilities? So when we start a, um, some kind of medication, there's wide variety of things that can happen between the chemotherapy initiation at the end of it as well as other things. So cardiomyopathy is the one, ischemia, hypertension, pulmonary hypertension, myocarditis, pericardial disease, radiation, thrombomolism, QT prolongation, as well as arrhythmia. So there's a lot of things that can happen between the start and the finish of the actual chemotherapy. And each and every one of them carries a specific nuance in terms of how to manage it. So Dr. Tang uh, will be talking about the heart failure aspect and just quickly going over and reverberating what Dr. Shepard said, there are therapeutic strategies for doxorubicin or anthracycline mediated toxicity where we can prolong the continuous infusion or we can use the liposomal uh, doxorubicin and again there's a concept of uh, efficacy on it as well as the use of dexorosazan which has been known to cause a little bit of decrease in cardiotoxicity but has some oncological implication in addition to GDMT. But there are other strategies we can use in conjunction with what we have for uh, cardiomyopathies. And it's also drug specific also. So for example, for trastuzumab, if we are able to improve the cardiac outcome, we would like the patient go back on trastuzumab because we know from clinical trials that the benefit is quite huge. And this is a small uh, 
um, hazard ratio determined. So if you stop the Trastuz map for only four weeks, the chance of cardiovascular outcome increases by 15% in just four weeks. So Trastuz map is a very powerful medication. So our goal is to liaison with the actual oncologists and see how we can optimize their cardiac function so they can get these life-saving uh, cancer medications. So that's where the uh, cooperation comes in. So not only that, there's other aspect of cardiomyopathy. So 5FU has known to cause the different kind of cardiomyopathies. About 20 to 30% of patients on 5FU can develop cardiomyopathies and use the nitrates, calcium channel blockers, and use of other therapies such as the oral medication, capecitabine, could be a possibility. So this is where we liaison. Same with VEGF inhibitors. So ACE inhibitor tends to be first choice, but the blood pressure can be as high as 250 systolic. So you need some of the stronger medications such as nifedipine to aggressively manage these patients. There are newer medications coming out, for example, CAR T-cell therapy, and we're going to see a lot of inflammatory disease secondary to that. And what we're going to find is that the use of steroids and other IL-6 antagonists, the inflammatory aspect that we haven't explored too much in cardiology, we might be delving into it because as more and more medications are coming out, chemotherapies, immune checkpoint inhibitors, which are looking directly at the inflammation. And certainly radiation is a big part of the therapy. When we look at the um, oncology patient and management of that is also becoming more and more prominent in how to do it. So as mentioned, immune checkpoint inhibitors are here to stay. About roughly 50% of the cancer have some form of immune checkpoint inhibitors. And this is the currently the clinical trials going on in checkpoint inhibitors, the phase one, phase two, phase three, and you, each dot represented clinical trial. So you can see how much of the uh, patients we're gonna be start seeing who will be treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors and on the peripheries, all the different kinds of cancers that you can see. And just to give you an idea of what has happened, if you look at the top left-hand corner, in 2014, 2015, those were the numbers of fatal and non-fatal myocarditis. Just in 2016 and 17, there's a massive increase in these myocarditis patients. And thing is, we're gonna keep seeing the increase on these myocarditis patients, and we're gonna see more and more of it. And thing is, again, as I mentioned before, the management just also becomes trickier in terms of, for example, this is a, a journey of one of the patients uh, with myocarditis, as you can see. Um, the troponins are going up and the uh, creatinine kinase, but the way we treated it, first we tried uh, with prednisone in this patient and then there was plasma exchange. And there was a use of a batacept, which is an inhibitor of one of the CTLA-4, which is an immune checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, use of a batacept uh, to prevent uh, severe form of myocarditis. So there are certain nuances which is more specific to cardio-oncology rather than just the cardiac patient that we have to be aware of. A batacept is a really good medication and right now there's a multi-center trial going on called Atrium which is actually uh, uh, run by uh, my good friend Dr. Neelan from MGH and we are the part of that clinical trial also. So there's a lot of nuances that goes on into this. Other things that I'm going to briefly touch about is acuity prolongation. So some of the medications, some of the chemotherapy, for example, the arsenic trioxide or the um, uh, HDAC inhibitors, they tend to cause acuity prolongation. And we have to be aware of that medication because if these patients are on that medication, so we have to make sure that we are doing ECGs. And there's specific guidelines associated with it in terms of how we look at the QT. 
So one of the best formulas to use is uh, published in 2004 for the QT measurement, but uh, uh, you have to be careful. And when we look at the FDA guidelines for each and every medication, there's a specific guideline how to manage the QT prolongation in terms of looking at the electrolytes as well as uh, adjusting the dosages based on the QT. So we have to be cognizant about that. Uh, last but not the least, the atrial fibrillation is a big part of it. And we know that patients who get diagnosed with atrial fibrillation has more propensity to uh, detect cancer and patients who have cancer has within the first three months, they have more propensity of developing atrial fibrillation. So they go hand in hand. And the management of atrial fibrillation becomes tricky. For example, this medication called ibrutinib, which is uh, being used quite a lot in CML and CLL patients, and here is a leukemia, about 25% of the patients in the real population can develop um, atrial fibrillation. And the problem with that is that if you give anticoagulation, there's reports anywhere from 6 to 56% of these patients can develop ICH. So it becomes very, very uh, finicky in terms of how to manage this patient. But at the end of the day, um, the, what the tolerance is all about and all what we are trying to reverberate is the uh, cooperation. It is a teamwork. Cardio-oncology, as Dr. Collier said, is, a, is based on this teamwork. So we are coming together in the beginning, but it's keeping together is a progress. And now in Cleveland Clinic, we are working together and it's going to be success. And as Dr. Collier mentioned, then ESC guidelines just came up uh, over the weekend. And that's a platform, it is an expert opinion in terms of what we should do. We here in Cleveland Clinic are actually starting a registry, which is a global registry, about 130 institutions, 24 different countries, and we are actually liaisoning with all the cardio-oncologists all across the world to actually do the registry, to do the research, and to have a uh, uh, really good uh, uh, evidence-based uh, guidelines that will come down the road. But at least CSC guidelines does provide a very good template to start with. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org slash tallrounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.